there. This is 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. I'm Jason Blitman, and this summer we have a fabulous Pride season in store for you. Today, I talked to Camille Kellogg, an editor at Bloomsbury Children's Books, who just released her first novel as an author, Just As You Are, a queer rom-com inspired by Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. At Bloomsbury, she acquires middle grade and young adult books. She lives in New York City and is passionate about queer stories, good books, and bad puns. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Camille Kellogg. So, Camille Kellogg, let us go in a little bit of a roundabout way to talk about your new book, Just As You Are. By day, you are an editor, and by night, you've become a writer, first-time author. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Absolutely. So, I was one of those kids who was always reading a book, who always wanted to be a writer. I majored in English in college with a double major in creative writing. But I also really wanted to be an editor. I knew about halfway through college, that was what I wanted to do. And to focus on young adult and children's books specifically, because growing up, I really didn't have a wide diversity of books. It was the same character over and over again. And now as a queer person, I know how important it would have been for me to see myself in books and how important it is for every kid to see themselves in books. And around the time I was in college, there was a really exciting wave in different kinds of books. People from all sorts of different backgrounds were publishing, and I wanted to be a part of it. I had also just moved to New York for the first time. I was spending a lot of time making friends and realizing what how nice it is to live in a city with a gay bar. Mm. And I was having a nice time, and I was never writing. I never made time for it. And so after about five years of working in publishing, I decided... I really wanted to give it a try. And at least if I gave it a try, I could feel like, okay, I did it. It didn't work out for me, but I know. And I can stop feeling guilty about it every time I think about it. So I started carving out 30 minutes, three times a week to write before work. Wow, that's it? That's it. And I figured I'll just see how it goes. And it turned out I really liked it. I loved starting my morning in a creative way. Mm. And as an editor, you spend a lot of time looking at other people's creative material. And it felt really nice to build something of my own and be the one coming up with the ideas. I started doing it every day before work. And then the pandemic hit. And suddenly I had a whole lot of time on my hand. And this became my pandemic project. I didn't bake any bread. I didn't get into plans. I didn't do any of that. I just worked on this. And after I had a full draft, I figured I might as well edit it. And after I edited it, I thought, okay, I might as well share it with a few people and see what they think. And then I was like, I have this polished book. I might as well just send it out to agents. So really at every step, it was like, okay, I guess I'll try this. Hmm. And it ended up working out. I love that. Okay, I want to go back a tiny bit. You mentioned when you were in college, you were you started to see different kinds of books coming out. Mm-hmm. Are there some that like stick out to you as, oh, finally starting to see representation or whatever that you wanted to be a part of? Absolutely. So the two books that I can pinpoint are The Rest of Us Just Live Here by Patrick Ness, which is a really funny end-of-the-world book. You know those <laughs> books where... The world is ending and you're the chosen one and you have to step up and be a hero. Sure. This book is about the kids who go to school with that kid and are just like, oh, man, we wanted to have graduation, but the gym blew up and this kid saved the world, but it was really inconvenient. He crushed my car. 
when he was fighting the monsters. It's a lovely book. So it's the, you always get it from the main character's perspective. This is from the secondary character's perspective. Exactly. They don't save the day. They're just the other kids. (laughs) That's amazing. It's so brilliant. And it has queer characters and the main character has OCD and characters who have eating disorders. And I was reading it and I realized I really had nothing like that growing up. And to see mental health and sexuality depicted in a book, I realized just YA literature in particular had come so far since I was a kid. And it hadn't even been that long, but it was such a moving experience. And I am a longtime babysitter. I was a camp counselor for a long time. I love kids. And it made me really want to give that experience that I hadn't had to a lot of kids. I am a relatively new reader. And when I read Red, White, and Royal Blue when it came out, I didn't realize how much I desperately needed that representation in a rom-com. It really meant something to me because I saw myself and that was not an experience I had really had. I feel the exact same way. Growing up, I loved rom-coms. I was one of those girls who had a group of nerdy friends and every weekend we would get a bunch of snacks and watch rom-coms. And we loved all of them. And we never spoke to any real boys, but we would dream <laughs> about the boys who would sweep us off our feet one day. And when I came out, I felt, oh, these aren't for me anymore. This is mm-hmm. not going to happen to me. I don't get that rom-com. And the first couple of queer rom-coms I read, I also just bawled my eyes out. Yeah, It's so powerful to see someone like you get, get to have a fun time and fall in love. I'm curious, was watching the rom-coms when you were a kid, did you ever even start to think, oh, this isn't for me? I'm enjoying the experience of watching it. I'm enjoying the experience of the community with my friends. But, oh, something is off. I don't feel... Actually, no. I. It's interesting that you asked that because I think a lot of those rom-coms are written by people who know what women want. And a lot of them are written by women. And the men bear... Some resemblance to real life men, but not a whole lot. And I actually think it made it harder for me to figure out that I was gay because I was like, but I love Mr. Darcy in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. And I love Hugh Grant because I had been such an avid consumer of those rom-coms my whole life. That's so interesting. I have not thought about that. But upon reflection, I will say, when I was younger and watched rom-coms and loved rom-coms, it never, I never really felt that way either. I was never like, oh, this doesn't sit right with me. That was never something that I felt. I just loved the story and got swept up. Maybe it was that I just wanted to be Meg Ryan. (laughs) <laughs> is that, maybe it was that and I don't even realize didn't realize that until now because yeah. love love and it's right. exciting to watch and it still gives you all those good warm feelings yeah and, but then to take it the next step and see yourself in it it's just boom <laughs> yeah what were some of your favorites off the top so clearly ahead, Pride and Prejudice Pride and Prejudice yes the Kira Knightley version of course Sleepless in Seattle is mm-hmm. a huge one mm-hmm. I love anything with Hugh Grant in it Pretty much anything that he has been in, I have seen, even the terrible things. He is so funny. And Colin Firth as well. So Bridget Jones's Diary was uh-huh. a big one. I really loved music and lyrics. It was uh-huh. a movie that uh-huh. 
critically panned, totally flopped. And I, as a 12 year old, was just like, this is what love is. <laughs> this movie. I but love all the bronze as well. Yes. For me, like, I just, You've Got Mail was it for me. <laughs> yes, that whole movie is so brilliant. And to what you said about music and lyrics, for me, the the unsung hero is Must Love Dogs. Loved that one, too. We're talking about rom-coms. Clearly, your love of Pride and Prejudice is what inspired Just As You Are. At what point were you like, okay, I need to adapt to Pride and Prejudice because that's what's important to me? Oh, gosh, I forget, actually, because I had the, that idea so many years in mm. advance of when I actually started writing it. And that was in part because Pride Prejudice is so well plotted. The proposal comes about halfway through. There is a reveal at 25 percent and at 75 percent. She was such a genius with her pacing. And I thought that might be a good way for me to learn how to write a book is to adapt something that is so well crafted. And I played around with the idea. And the moment when I realized it might actually work as a real book on its own is when I named the magazine, which is mm. called The Netherfields. In Pride and Prejudice, the rich man who comes in and buys a house in their neighborhood, it's called Netherfield. And it seems like the perfect name for a slightly sexual sort of new age magazine. And when I got that, sort of the whole world fell into place. And I thought, oh, I might actually be able to do this. And I ended up really falling in love with that process and being able to just put my own world and the kinds of conversations I have with my friends on my page. It flowed so much more naturally than those sort of stiff literary stories ever did. Can you talk us through building that world, developing those characters? You just said it's it was like putting you and your friends on the page. What was that like? It was very fun. I put in a lot of pop culture references, a lot of references to queer brands, a lot of references to queer dating apps and queer shows and queer celebrities and the kind of things I've never really seen in books. I also had a lot of fun taking the original characters from Pride and Prejudice and putting kind of queer stereotypes on them. And not necessarily the queer stereotypes in most media like the flamboyant gay man or the predatory butch lesbian but more in-group stereotypes, yeah. archetypes that we have that we joke about. So the queer woman who's desperately in love with her best friend, that to me obviously had to be the sister who follows Lydia around. Or that fuckboy who falls in love with everyone and then immediately falls in love with someone else and people are left brokenhearted. That became the character who was Wickham in Pride and Prejudice. And taking these people who I interact with in my community and have become jokes, but I've never seen those jokes really referenced in media, was a lot of fun. Have your friends read it? Do, have oh, the yeah. friends who have who are those tropes, have they read? <laughs> and they're yes. like, wait a minute, Camille, this is me. I do have one friend who has been in love with her best friend for a long time and might be a little bit offended when she reads the book. But in her defense, I have at least six friends who are in love with their best friend. Of course. That, I was going to say, to your point, it's a stereotype. There is a trope there. And if anyone is offended by it, it's they need to be a little bit more self-reflective. Yes, definitely. While we're talking about these characters, there's a piece that I want to read to you. We have one character who says, over time... I realized that just because I want to look masculine, I don't have to act masculine. I could still be feminine in some ways, and that's okay. And this is a character who's deciding that 
they don't have to wear dresses to work every day in order to be self-reflective. And they also, if they don't want to wear dresses, that doesn't mean they also can't be feminine. Gender assumptions and gender presenting and identity conforming to gender roles is a very prevalent piece in this world. Can you talk about that? I definitely set out to talk about gender and identity and expression a lot in this book because that is something that I had to figure out when I was coming out. For everyone, gender and sexuality aren't necessarily tied, but for me, they definitely were. These days, I identify as butch. I wear mostly men's clothes. I am really happy with that. But it took me a long time to figure that out, in part because there is so little media that talks about gender expression and identity and that talks about it in nuanced ways that's not shades of black and white. One thing I think is really interesting is that the public narrative around queerness is one of certainty, usually. Mm. When you say, I was born this way, or I've always known, and when you come out as a certain label, it's a declaration, and you're supposed to be super certain about what you are. And in practice, for me, I haven't always known. And there were certainly hints and signs. And looking back, it seems more obvious, but it took me a long time to figure it out. And I think that is true for a lot of people. And having that narrative of certainty can make people feel ashamed of not knowing and feel like they're not queer enough or trans enough or ace enough to claim a certain label or feeling like they can't be in the community because they're only figuring it out or they don't know what label is right for them. And I have a lot of friends who over the years have shared those insecurities and feeling like they don't belong anywhere because they don't know. And it was really important for me to show the main character, Liz, is really torn between acting masculine, acting feminine, what she wears, how what she wears influences how people see her, which influences how they treat her, which influences how she feels. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's kind of caught up in her own head with all this. And I really wanted to show a character who doesn't work through that and find the one true answer, but instead learns to accept that she might never know. And that's okay. And it's okay to be uncertain. And you need to give yourself a certain amount of fluidity with these things. There are labels that people feel like they have to impose on somebody else that some people feel they need to impose on themselves to make other people feel comfortable. When I was first figuring out my sexuality and starting to identify as butch, I went out and bought a leather jacket I carried my arms a little wider. I tried to seem so tough and masculine and like I knew what was going on. And that really isn't me. I love rom-coms and puppies and children. And I love to get excited about things. And I feel like I spent a long time trying to act like what I thought a butch was supposed to act. Mm. And it's been nice to let go of that and to act however I want to act and not worry about what that means about my gender or identity or label. Act however you want to act, wear whatever you want to wear. There can be a giant, muscled, straight man who also loves rom-coms and puppies and children. The opposite can be very true, too. So it is very... Just the spectrum of it all. I'm grateful that there is this sort of representation in the book. Can you speak to why writing something that is 
a little breezier than a super literary book? Why something with a big heart? Why was that important to you? I think those stories are important for everyone. We all need a break. Life is hard. Work is stressful. The world sometimes feels like it's falling apart. And having those fun stories to look to can be such a relief. Mm -hmm. I also think it's really important for queer people because so many of our stories are tragic. For a long time, there was an obscenity law that any book with homosexual content had to end with an appropriate moral lesson, which meant they had to die, or one of them had to be left destitute, or one of them got a horrible illness. And I think that has really infected the public narrative of what queer lives look like for queer people and for straight people. We don't have a lot of examples of queer people living happy, fulfilled lives and getting happy endings. While we're talking about just identity and queer stories, you are a queer person working in publishing, wrote a queer book in a moment that is tremendously challenging for publishing, for queer books, for queer people. What is it like working as an editor right now? What is it like working as an author right now? Your book is going to be banned in places. That's just a crazy thing to think about. It's scary. It really feels like when you want to hobble a democracy, you go for the books first. And it's also scary seeing the progression. When it started, it was focused on libraries and school libraries and public institutions where the government has at least some semblance of jurisdiction over them. And now they're starting to move against private individuals, too. The company where I work, Bloomsbury, was actually sued for publishing Sarah J. Maas because her books have a lot of sexually explicit content, and a Barnes & Noble in Virginia was sued for selling that book. I just saw the list of 13 most banned books came out today, and that's one of them. Yep. One one of hers is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, that book was, the list was very intimidating. I saw it today, and it is all queer books and books by authors of color, and it is terrifying. And a lot of them are young adult books because this all started as under the guise of protecting children. And that is especially scary as a young adult book editor. (laughs) But I think from the editorial side, the only thing I can really do is make sure we're not self-censoring and that we're still putting out these books. And we're not thinking, oh, if we include this scene, will it get banned? Mm. Because so many of these books are going to get banned anyway, just for daring to have queer characters or characters of color. And I think when we start self-censoring, they start winning. Is that something that Bloomsbury is supportive of? You're not not self-censoring? That's fantastic. Though I imagine very challenging. I think it's hardest on the authors, for sure. Mm -hmm. The authors who have their book banned or who are going to festivals in states where they no longer feel comfortable. It's really tough. And I think it's going to be tough for a while. And... As an editor, the best thing I could do is just be supportive and make sure we have safety plans in place and make sure our legal teams are fighting these bans the best we can. Mm-hmm. But it also, sometimes it feels like there's not a lot you can do and it becomes very intimidating. Yeah. Well, that's very scary. Yes, definitely. But my book hasn't been banned yet. It's not out. We'll see if it does. <laughs> On one hand, fingers crossed that it doesn't, obviously. On the other hand, getting banned you get more attention and it makes people think, I want to read that. It does feel like something to be proud of, writing a book that gets banned. It means you're doing something worthy. Are there some that you're particularly proud of that you've published? 
So I started at Bloomsbury about two years ago. And before that, I worked at Macmillan at HarperCollins. And it takes about two years for a book to go through the full process. So my first wave of books that I acquired at Bloomsbury is coming out this summer. What should be on our radar? So the one that comes out the soonest is called If Tomorrow Doesn't Come. It is about a queer teenager from a small town who was always a grade A student and is a leader in her Catholic church and a star in the soccer team. And she gets to an elite college and she finds that she can't keep up in her classes. She has nothing in common with the people around her. She doesn't make friends. She's not a soccer star anymore. And she falls apart. And the book actually opens on the morning she's about to take her own life. Mm. And right before that, she finds out that an asteroid is going to hit Earth in nine days. And so to spare her family and her friends more pain, she decides to make it through just nine more days. And it Mm. is a queer story. It's also very much about figuring out that you're worth saving, even if it feels like you have no future. Even Mm. if it feels completely impossible that you can grow into a person who is worth having a life that you're still worth trying for. And wow. oh my God, I cry every time I talk about this book. It is beautiful. It sounds too like it aligns so much with what you've been talking about in terms of your values. It sounds like such a cool book to be your first at Bloomsbury. Yes, I am so excited about it. It is definitely very in line with the kind of things that I love. And the author <laughs> is absolutely brilliant. What is the author's name? Jen St. Jude. Tomorrow Doesn't Come by Jen St. Jude. I look forward to checking. Anything that we should know about Camille Kellogg? You mentioned this earlier. I am trying to find a hobby that is not stressful or monetized. Uh My hobby used to be writing. And now making that into a career. Right. I was going to say that this doesn't count anymore. (laughs) And I also play softball, which is very fun, but I find very stressful. (laughs) I take it. Not too seriously in a competitive way, but too seriously in a you're letting your team down way. Oh. So I'm in the market for a new stress-free hobby that cannot be monetized. If you have any ideas. Are you like a knitter? I'm terrible at crafts, which really oh. doesn't me in, okay. in hobby choices. My husband just took sailing lessons. Ooh. And we went sailing the other day and it was super fun. And I wouldn't say easy, but like the lessons, it was only two full days. And he was now, he's now certified for a specific boat and he could take the boat out and it'd be fun. That sounds really fun. And uh-huh. I don't think I can monetize that. Someone could, but I don't right. think me. My quick answer for you to help. Okay. I'm going to look into sailing around New York City. <laughs> Thank you for doing the good work in terms of getting our stories into the hands of young people who need to read them. It's so much fun. I actually went to a career fair the other day and some kids came up and one of them said, oh, do you have any queer books? And I looked around and I was like, I don't think I have any straight books. <laughs> <laughs> like you can have this one and this one. It was very fun. You know how important it is from me. I just want to say thank you for doing that because I don't know that you get thanked often enough by the kids who need to read them and... I think that it's important to such a huge group of people. Thanks. And I just think it's so cool. So I, I love asking this question of writers and folks that work in with books. Is there a book that changed your life? What book changed your life if you had to pick one? That would be Fun Home by Alison Beck. I read that book when I was 21, and it was the first time I had ever seen a butch character depicted in a book or a movie or a TV show, or at least depicted in a positive way. 
And I can still remember the feeling of reading the book and seeing myself for the first time. And just before then, I had all these experiences that are reflected in the book. Throwing fits about wearing dresses to parties as a kid and being jealous of men's clothing. And up until that point, when I was 21, I thought that meant something was wrong with me and something was broken inside of me. And reading that book, I realized that I might not be the only one who felt that way. Now it feels a little silly to look back. It's such a young person thing to think I am the only one in the world who has ever felt this way. But when you're young, you don't know. You haven't seen the examples. You have no idea if other people are out there like you. And it was such a powerful experience that I became so hungry for more books I could see myself in, which I think is ultimately why I wrote this book, because I Mm -hmm. went through all the others and I kept looking for more. And I felt this just longing for more books I could see myself in. And it got so bad that eventually I decided I would just write my own. Had you already thought about going into publishing? Was that sort of already on your radar? It was on my radar. I didn't know at that point that I wanted to work in children's books. I was still Mm -hmm. figuring it out. I hadn't, I then started doing some internships in publishing, which really solidified it for me. But I knew I wanted to work in publishing even before I saw myself in books. I imagine you knew you wanted to do that, but then reading the book helped shape the sort of work you wanted to continue doing in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Camille, this has been so fun. I'm grateful for your time. And I'm so excited for our listeners to check out Just As You Are. By this point, it will have been out and it is wherever books are sold. And where can people find you if they want to keep up with Camille Kellogg? You can find me at my website, CamilleKellogg.com, or on Instagram and Twitter at Kellogg underscore Camille. Amazing. Have an amazing rest of your day. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This was so fun. Thanks for listening. Just As You Are is on sale now wherever books are sold. Make sure to check out our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, share us with your friends. Write a review and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when the latest episode drops. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blumen. Our audio engineer is Matt Temkin. Until next time. <laughs>